0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. This time of year, a lot of folks, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, are needing to resort to night riding to get out and get a mountain bike ride in when the daylight hours are short. And frankly, a lot of people are psyched to do it because night riding's pretty fun and a different challenge and a good way to put a twist on trails that you know well and have ridden a million times before and i sat down with tom place of outbound lighting to talk about the ins and outs of getting a light setup to mountain bike with and get into it about how outbound goes about designing lights and how things like Brighter isn't actually necessarily always better, and we talk about beam patterns and trade-offs and weight and battery size and cost and runtime and a whole bunch more stuff to help you kind of think through how you would go about putting together a setup to go night riding and what to look for when you're thinking all that kind of stuff through, and something different here and, I think, an interesting look into a topic that we haven't covered a whole lot on Bikes and Big Ideas, so... Hope you enjoy it. I sure did. But before we get to that, I do want to take a minute to encourage folks to check out our upcoming Blister Summit in February in our hometown of Crested Butte, Colorado. And it's a really good time and a really cool consumer-focused ski and snowboard demo event and not just covering skis and snowboards themselves, but lots of Backcountry gear, including airbags and beacons, and so on, and a ton of great brands, including Forefront, Dina Star, Folsom, Kessley, Icelandic, Moment, ON3P, Rosignol, Solomon, Zipfit, Zag, and a whole bunch more. And we also have some really great panel sessions of folks from the industry talking about what they do and. A lot of great folks hanging out and having a good time and sliding around on snow. It's a blast, so check out the link in the show notes and come join us. Anyway, and with that, let's get right to my conversation with Tom Place of Outbound Lighting. Well, Tom, great to sit down and chat and looking forward to kind of hearing about light design, a little bit of a different aspect of bike adjacent tech at least that we haven't really covered a ton on here so doing something a little different but should be fun should be interesting uh how are you doing and where are you today
1: uh yeah thanks for having me on i am doing just fine i am currently in bellingham um in my truck because it's the only quiet place anywhere around here um just moved up here uh, a couple months ago from olympia uh been up in the pacific northwest for a little bit but uh, i work remotely. And then we have um, four others uh, in Chicago that run our headquarters. And um, so I'm kind of usually all over the place, but I try to stick in this area as much as possible.
0: Yeah, right on. Pretty good place to be. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess just to sort of kick it off, tell us a little bit about Outbound and what you do there.
1: Sure. Um, So we're we're a small company. We've got five of us total right now. Um, and we, uh, we make bike lights and our, I guess we can, we'll talk more about our, our approach to design and other things later, I'm sure. But, um, essentially what got us started was, um, uh, my, my partner, Matt, who founded the company, went on a ride with a buddy of his many years ago, um, while he was still working in automotive lighting and, um, was given a, you know, pretty expensive setup at the time. And, uh it was not great. And so we thought, really, they're charging this much for this. Uh, We could do better and make it better and and less expensive. So uh, he decided to investigate a little bit and uh, look at, at the state of the industry and competition and see if he could make a go of it and decided to, you know, like most startups do start building lights in his living room and um, making it happen as a one man show. And then as he, Uh, grew it was just the the timing worked out for me to find him right after he got past the kickstarter curse you know he didn't die in the first 12 months and he was doing something novel and different so i just happened to be in a spot where i was looking for basically exactly that um i wanted to i basically tried my hand at getting into lighting in the industry before that that didn't work out uh, exactly as i had planned for a number of different reasons very good learning experience um and matt and i had a very good uh balance in our skill set and our kind of wants and needs and the way we want to go about things so um you know when you're a small company you can never you don't have enough uh resources to hire a department to do things you have mm-hmm. everybody wearing many hats and it worked out really well for us where i could come in with very unique background and experience and he could fill in all the things that I sucked at and vice versa. And so, you know, he started out doing all of our basically all of our design work on the mechanical side and optical side. And I did all the electrical work. He did all of our website and SEO and, and ad optimization. Uh, I did all lot of media stuff and, and events. And then um, we just kind of split our uh, supply chain management and um, we just fill in all the gaps. And then as we've grown, we've been able to bring some people on that uh, have more dedicated roles, but still, you know, generally helping out with anything wherever. Um, So we have, you know, uh, full-time shipping, uh, full-time assembly because we assemble everything in-house in Chicago. Um, So Andy is, uh, I don't want to say slaving away, but he's working away consistently throughout the year, all year, just building lights. And he... Uh, I'd say does 95% of our assembly Um, and then we just hired a new engineer, Greg, whose uh, job is to uh, basically help us scale without adding more people so we can assemble more efficiently and so that's kind of looking at uh, automation for assembly processes so that we can involve robots where they add the most value to us so they reduce the cycle time or reduce the, the human input to cycle time so that Andy can assemble you know, four times as many lights today as he could when we first started the company. Um, it's not to say we'll never hire more people to assemble, but, uh, you know, we're trying to scale efficiently. And I think that's a big part of um, our approach to creating the lights and, and the design of them in the first place as well, as, as the assembly is a large part of that. Um, and that's going to help us be sustainable long-term.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of all makes sense. And um, I mean, I've talked about quite a bit on here i've got a background as mechanical engineer and design for manufacturing is important and assembly is a big part of that and yeah great to make something that works well but you need to actually be able to build the damn thing too and uh all comes good so i guess tell us a little bit more about the background that led you into working in bike lights though i mean you've you mentioned having taken a stab at a prior endeavor in that space that didn't really pan out but um so clearly have some relevant background pre-outbound, but kind of, how'd you make your way here and what was the background that led you to that spot? Sure.
1: Um, I'd say it's it's equally important, uh, perhaps more important, than how Matt got into this position. So Matt, Matt started the company. He um, is a mechanical engineer, had experience previously at Boeing, um, and then went to work for Diode Dynamics, which is... Um, like rigid or baja designs that make off-road lights and um uh, aftermarket lighting stuff and he was basically their their optical designer doing all of their optical engineering um which is also important for stuff that has to maintain you know road legal status where there are very strict guidelines around uh beam pattern and intensity and angles and so forth um and so he's got uh, a lighting background and a mechanical engineering background. He's got some experience with Boeing where the way they go about things is very unique compared to a lot of other industries obviously um, and poignant right now given uh, recent events <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so he's that's his background and then mine I actually came from the LED industry so I worked for Cree and Cree is vertically integrated so they you know make everything from the the crystal growth, the actual silicon carbide wafers all the way through streetlights and everything in between. And so I was right in the middle after uh wafer fabrication. Uh basically our, our package and test area is focused on uh singulating wafers and creating LED chips. Those end up getting used in components that then go into the bike lights, et cetera. And as I worked there for, for years in R&D, they eventually um their management approach is very different from Boeing, uh, and they thankfully are good at recognizing what people are good at and what they're not. And um, sometimes they try to uh, force people to you know, break out of a shell. Other times they say, you know what, you're really good at this thing. Let's make that your job. And uh, so my job essentially became uh, applications engineering manager. So uh, the, the crux of that position is teaching major customers how best to use our LEDs appropriately. So you know uh Panasonic GE Acuity they all make lights in in different ways and they they are they have their own goals for performance and cost and whatnot and so they use products they think make the most sense and oftentimes the performance doesn't come out the way they think it will and so they come into me where I have a lab with technicians where we can um, do proper metrology on all of the performance metrics and test against all the applicable standards and then give them advice saying well You're using a domed LED here because it's more efficient, but you're also getting more color separation as a result. So you're meeting your intensity standards, but you're falling out for COA. So if you go to this flat lens part, your efficiency will take a small hit, but you'll actually meet spec and basically trying to help them through that process uh, where we know the ins and outs of every one of our products and we can help them use it better. Um, And I'll say the long personal journey of how I got to working with matt but the the short version is i uh got divorced and decided at the i had an opportunity to go make lights with another brand uh, with industry nine actually um and it was this really grand um it was a great opportunity because they already have this established brand they make high performance stuff it could work out great if we just make the ultimate of ultimate products um for people and it would you know people would buy in because they trust i9 because they make good stuff and uh yeah it turns out starting with the ultimate of ultimate products from nothing um that's hard that takes a while it uh takes time resources money um and uh that's not necessarily the best way to start up an entire product line at a company that's never made consumer electronics products so um suffered a lot from feature creep, where we just keep adding features that we think are cool or could add value. And at some point you just need something that works um, to start and that gets your baseline. And so uh, long and short of it, industry didn't work out, but uh, we parted ways and I did some other things and then found Matt. And um, uh, the, the nice thing about our approach here is that it's the exact opposite of that. Um, We've both learned from each of our experiences with previous companies, you know, tribal knowledge, it's the best way to learn things. Um, And we know what not to do. And uh, one really key part of what we're doing at Outbound is we're basically starting with the base level products uh, for each different segment, and then um, adding features to kind of narrow their use case as they have value. And uh, that way, we we have a very stable base for the company so that customers can trust that we're going to be around in five years. We're um, not just making weird one-off stuff that 10 people are buying at a high margin. And, you know, it's a lot harder sus- to sustain. Um, and we're also able to get the baseline stuff out there and get feedback from people faster so we know what really has value in the field. Uh, because I think pretty much every single person you've, you've talked to on this podcast that a, a company has talked about, you know, version one, version two, version three. And I feel like a lot of the the response when when you're already on version three and people look at like, oh, well, why did you even do that for version one? How did you not know that that wasn't going to work? It's like, well, sometimes you don't know everything. And it's not that, you know, it's not that we're trying to to find a new version every year to make more money. It's that we're learning as we go and we're We're really trying to make revisions that make a lot of sense. So anyways, that's I I get caught on tangents a lot. So rein me in if I
0: No, that's a good rundown. I like that. And I mean frankly, lights kinda seem like a product where you maybe don't necessarily need a billion bells and whistles to make something good, you know? It they don't it's not something where you necessarily have the biggest need for complexity and tons of features so i guess that's a pretty good segue into just kind of getting your thoughts on what makes for a good bike light in general and how are you kind of going about trying to make what you think are good ones
1: yeah so uh, i think the the primary difference in in the way we're approaching it um is really just trying to optimize each product for specific use cases and specific needs. Cause I think the industry in general has reached a point between technology and um, just all these small companies trying different things, you know, high pivots have been around for a while. Now they're getting to the point where we can make them work and and not totally suck in one area just for the downhill performance. Um, we're getting to the point where we can really optimize things and, you know, there's, 18 different classes of mountain bikes out there it's not just a downhill bike and a trail bike Um, same kind of goes for bike lights where it it seems that most of the industry has treated bike lights as here's a bike light for you to use anywhere for anything Um, in fact there's some other companies that have marketing that says it's optimized for trail road commuting uh, it can't be optimized for all of those. It's like saying this downhill bike is perfect for your commute to work. It's, it's just not true. Um, And so we're, we're looking at it uh, as, you know, what are the widest applications, most common use cases, and how do we make a product that's really better for those in, in a really noticeable way? Um, So we're, the, the simplest way to think about it is we're kind of segmenting based on the type of riding and the mounting app, mounting location. So Helmet lights serve very different purpose from handlebar lights. They both have value, uh, some more so than others in different scenarios. Uh, And then uh, the type of riding, obviously, downhill riding versus riding on a flat road uh, with cars coming at you, you want two very different things from how you spread that light around. Um, So for us, we start with those two things and then figure out uh, first and foremost what we need from kind of a, a beam pattern perspective. Um, and so I mean by that is you know your car has low beam and high beam. You've got your brights that blind everybody. Um, and then you've got your low beam that has a cutoff so that you're not blinding every single car coming at you. And uh bikes are a little bit different from cars, obviously. Um, but the use case for commuting around town, your bike isn't pitching up and down a lot. So having a cutoff beam actually makes a ton of sense because you are putting the light not only where it's not blinding people but where you can actually use it. If you're on a flat road and half of your light is going up into the sky, it's not really adding a whole lot of value. It's You're not able to see the road any better. Um, and you're just wasting power, which means you have to have a bigger battery. So we can make a better product by shaping the beam patterns so that we're using the light efficiently and so that we're not blinding people. Um, by contrast, on trail, you don't care about cutoff because you're going 20 miles an hour down some janky mountain, you need to see everything in front of you. There's not a whole lot of people coming at you. Not to say that there's not, you know, user other users out there, and that you need to, you know, you should be kind and courteous to people you run into. But goal number one with a bullet is you being able to see your entire surroundings as well as possible. Um, so we don't have a cutoff beam on our trail lights because your bike is pitching up and down a lot, and the moment you pitch uh, down. Into a steep G out, you can only see right in front of you. You can't see the run out at all, um, and so we want a light that that does on the handlebars at least does the best job of giving you that full field of visibility. Um, but then, helmet lights are also important. Um, again, they serve two different purposes. Your handlebar light, uh, because it's below your eye line, it's it's down physically lower to the ground. It casts shadows out. So if you have a really rough section of trail and you only have a helmet light what happens is it looks a lot flatter than it actually is and so it becomes harder to read you know during the daytime you have shadows you can tell those rocks are sticking out of the ground they're not flush with the dirt and how you weight your bike and ride over those rocks are very different if you can tell that they're sticking up Um, and a helmet light regardless of beam pattern or brand or anything will just make it all look very flat Um, so it uh, doesn't mean you can't read the terrain. It just makes it more difficult, especially when you're used to daylight. You know, most people ride the majority of the time in the daytime and less at night. So it's it's harder to get used to that because you're not just always in that um, lighting scenario. Um, so we we try to design our products to make it as easy as possible to read the terrain at high speed without without having to really focus on individual features or making sure you're pointing the lights the right way. We want you to be able to focus on the riding and not the lights. Um, so um with with our you know, I spent a lot of time talking about the optics and the beam pattern because that's that's ultimately the the biggest, most important thing for performance. Um but we're our goal is to make it the entire trail, your periphery, everything as evenly illuminated as possible. So you don't have two, you know, bright circles on the trail bouncing around uh, because those are then distractions. Um, you end up focusing on this beam that's bouncing around instead of the trail. Um, so, you know, everybody's got their own personal preferences, but that's kind of where we start from, from a design perspective. And then um, as we, you know, we've got our uh, our handlebar helmet light combo right now that's pretty ideal for the overwhelming majority of riders for the most common trail rides. Um most people are doing shorter rides after work, you know one or two hours, not all night epics every week um and it's usually on trails that are local they're familiar with um there's not a lot of people who have you know you know private bike park access at night, so there's not a lot of downhill runs at night doesn't mean that don't people don't do it, but it's a much smaller subset of users so we start with that and then you know if you're Living in the Pacific Northwest, for example, um, if you're uh, Remy, uh, you're you're riding really steep shoots a lot. And that's an example of where terrain makes a huge difference in terms of your setup, you know, just like you'd have you'd set up your suspension differently on a bike park trail versus a really rough, like kind of natural backcountry trail. Um, same way with equipment like this, where our standard helmet light might be ideal for most people on most trails. But then you get into these chutes where you creep in at the top of the chute and you have to look down into it and um, see your run out. Your handlebar light's not doing a whole lot because it's pointing out. Um, And you need to look down because it's steep enough. That's where, you know, having a more powerful helmet light makes more sense for that person. But for an average rider, it might actually make it worse because now your helmet light is brighter and washing out all that detail you're getting from the handlebar light. So we're trying to balance it based on the use case and it doesn't, and there's no one answer for everybody. Um, So that's what we're trying to make, you know, not just a bike light and now here's a brighter bike light and that makes it better. It doesn't always make it better. And in fact can actively make it worse sometimes, but um, I guess that's a good place to start.
0: It is. Yeah. And a bunch more that I want to kind of dive into there in a little more detail, but yeah, that last note about, Brighter, not always being better, up to at a point, and it being possible to have sort of too intense a spotlight effect where you just have this really intensely brightly lit point in the beam pattern that starts to get washed out and actually harder to see detail again. It's definitely something that I have run into before, and so uh, I guess to kind of bring that all back together a little bit, the example that you just gave of how different people's needs might produce a different light setup that would work best for them. Totally makes sense, but kind of take us through in some more detail, how you would sort of guide people on thinking through how to piece together a setup to go mountain biking with, we'll maybe pare it down to just mountain bike stuff, leave road riding out of it yeah. for the moment. But, you know, I'm finally road riding out of it all the time. <laughs> Me too, for the most part, um, <laughs> you know, Do whatever floods your boat, but uh, yeah, mountain biking is kind of more my thing. So anyway, yeah, like, say, you know, Joe Consumer comes to you and is like, hey, I, you know, this mountain biking thing is pretty cool. I'd like to try doing it at night. How do I figure out what's a good light setup for me? And, you know, what do you sort of think of? Because what you said about no one setup being perfect for... All people in all places and all scenarios is correct, and you know, pretty much no matter what you're talking about, really. So, uh, how do you think about those trade offs when it comes to lights, and how do you guide people on figuring out what's going to work for them and how to go about that kind of stuff?
1: So, so this is where I end up spending a lot of time and calories with individuals talking through an inane level of detail because it really, it depends. Um, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm really sick of all of the, you know, clickbaity like pop sci headlines that are basically the, the life coach is saying, here's the one secret to whatever, here's the best thing you could do for your, b-. like really, it just, it, it never works that way on the grand scale. It always depends on the type of person, the type of bike they typically ride, the type of train, they typically ride the way they prefer to ride. Um, even just down to the point you mentioned the, you know, kind of tunnel vision overexposure of a really bright, intense spot, uh, versus a smoother, uh, wider beam. Some people like that because it's so different from daytime, it's deliberately harder to see. And that's different. It's a change of pace. It's exciting. It's kind of like taking your hardtail to the bike park, you know, maybe not the thing when you're lapping for time or racing, but as a change of pace, it, it could be fun. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we are, you know, not necessarily designing products for that particular user who wants to see worse. Um, But I I tend to just talk to people about their general, uh, you know, first of all, their terrain, Um, like riding in the desert versus Pacific Northwest, super different. Um, If you're typically riding flow trails, like uh, Bentonville uh, has a lot of, they have a two mile long paved flow trail in town. That's actually pretty fun. But it's a paved flow trail. And there's a ton of people who ride that because it's in the in-town loops. It's very easy access. Um, It used to light up at night with like glow-in-the-dark rocks in it and stuff. Um, And if that's your normal trail, you don't need a handlebar light because everything is flat. It's buff. You know, If you're doing jump lines at night, um, like uh, Clay, who runs the Fox US Open, his buddies go night riding all the time. And basically all they do is like 30-foot booters and big jump lines at night and they're just stunning all the time which is great for me to watch but i don't really have a product for them just yet um we'll have one out soon that i think will be a lot better for them but they really just need a high power helmet light because when they're up in the air and moving their bike around uh their handlebar light will be pointing every which way and it's not necessarily helping that in fact can hurt them um they need to see out into landings and because lead-ups to jumps typically don't have a lot of logs and rocks and shit in the way it's usually pretty smooth and buff you don't need the depth and detail that a, a handlebar light gives you um on the opposite side of that in arizona everything is sharp and rough um everything is trying to kill you and your bike and if you just run a helmet light, you're going to have a hard time riding through the rock gardens because it's going to be really hard to read. You're going to be a little bit out of position all the time. And that stacks up really quickly. You know, you hit one rock, you're a little bit too far forward. The bike gets taken out from beneath you, you hit the next rock and it snowballs from there. Um, it's, it's subtle, but, and you can adjust to that. But if you really want an ideal setup, the handlebar light is far more useful there because it gives you the ability to read the terrain much better. And again, the idea is that you want to be able to read it without having to focus on it, you know, out of your periphery. Um, you listen to fast riders they are always talking about looking ahead, looking down the trail, not looking right in front of you. Um, it's the same way with the lights. You want to be able to look down the trail, which means the trail is coming at you in your periphery, right in front of your wheel. You don't want to have to look down to be able to figure out how to ride it or find your line, um, which is where the you know narrow spot beam is not very useful. Um, but more to the point, in Arizona, handlebar light is far more important. Um, also, it's wide open. You know, you're in the desert. You don't have a bunch of trees in every corner. So, if you have a wide enough beam in your bar light, you can actually see into most corners without issue. You don't really need a helmet light a lot of the time. Um, here in the Pacific Northwest, you kind of need both um, because of the variety of trails and because there's just so much foliage. You just need both, um, and so it it really kind of depends. And then also for you know, a lot of people, it's, it's a budget thing. Bikes are expensive. Um, I get that our lights are not dirt cheap. Uh, we try to price them so that they're reasonable You where you get what you pay for. They're not a luxury item. They're not 10 bucks on Amazon. Um, but, uh, some people already have light setups and sometimes those, you know, they might have a, a narrow beam, a smaller self-contained light from another brand. That's a pretty terrible bar light, but it's, not bad as a helmet light. And what might make sense for them is to get one of our bar lights. That's kind of it's optimized for that and then move that other light to their helmet, save some cost and, and get most of the benefits from it. And ultimately that's, you're we talking about how do I advise people to to set up their gear and what to look for. I'm much more focused on what makes sense for them for their whole situation so that they're happy long-term because Nobody likes feeling like they spent too much money on something that doesn't make a difference uh, for them. And it's really hard to say because most, you know, it's kind of like trying to ask somebody, how good of a rider are you? Like, eh. You know, should I take them down this trail or not? I, um, it's similar there. It's really hard to get that information out of people in, in, in an accurate way. But it, it really just depends on the use case. I'd say in general, you know, obviously I, most people are going to benefit from having both lights, helmet and handlebar and um one thing i would say that is pretty common um uh, that i think actually hurts most people is they they assume that the more powerful light should be on the helmet and again that's good for some people like like uh clay out in the east coast but um for most people having a brighter light on the bar makes more sense so long as the beam is wide and it's it's uh covering the area Um, So having a balance where your helmet light is a little bit less output than your handlebar light in general is better for most people. But again, entirely depends.
0: Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, like we've been saying, it's impossible to make one size fits all recommendations. But I think that was a good rundown on kind of the general considerations. And when you're talking about it often, at least making sense to have a brighter bar light than the helmet one is that kind of again getting back to the idea that you get much better contrast and shadow out of the bar light and so you're just trying not to wash that out with the helmet one and lose that definition of terrain texture and all the stuff that's sticking up out of the ground
1: that that's part of it um but turns out pretty much every other part of it also kind of leads that way so um first of all you want you want better depth so you can read the terrain better. So you don't want your helmet light to wash out the bar light. So you want the intensity of each to be reasonably even. When I say intensity, that's very different from total light output. Everybody measures everything in lumens. It's all we know. It's all the industry has taught any consumers for decades. Um, and that's fine. Uh, it's it's important, but it is far from the only metric that, that matters. And it's really hard to convey that in single numbers. So when I say... Uh, just really quickly, brightness versus intensity. Brightness, like the total number of lumens, is the total amount of light that's being emitted out the front of that light. Um, doesn't say where it's going, doesn't say how it's focused. Intensity is how bright the, the terrain is at a specific point. So right in front of you versus your periphery, where a really narrow focused beam would be much higher intensity in the middle of that spot, but it might be basically zero intensity outside that spot where everything is now black and you have really terrible contrast between the two and if you got a really intense spot your pupils will constrict a little bit which means so you can see that spot better which will make everything else look even darker making your contrast worse so uh when i want even intensity for a bar light that really means i want it to be really wide very wide even beam because your bars are never quite pointed where you're looking so you're moving on a trail you're, you know, climbing uphill, It obviously your bars kind of move all over the place on techie terrain, uh, but even downhill, you might be counter steering into a corner um, where your bars are actually pointed away from where you wanted to go, or even just small, subtle movements. If you have a narrow beam, you you get like the brief target fixation where you lights your eyes move where the light goes, and then you're offline. And because you can see that one spot really well, but not anything else, getting back onto your line is hard. Um, you got to do a lot of hunting. Whereas if you have a really wide, even beam, you can see the entire trail and your periphery. It's a lot easier to stay on a line and hold it um, or find a line again if you get off of it. So as a result, if you have a really wide beam, that means you need to have more total light to cover the entire field of view at the same intensity. So if I have a beam that's just random numbers that don't matter, but a beam that's 50 degrees wide versus 25 degrees, it's twice as wide. I need at least twice as much light to cover that area to the same intensity. So if our bar light is going to be a wider beam because it's not pointing where you're looking all the time and you want it to kind of give you a wall of light, you really need more power there in order to cover the field um, to a similar intensity. Um, That means that you need a bigger battery, which is heavier and a bigger light. Where you don't want a bigger battery and a heavier, bigger light is on your head where you're feeling it, your helmet bobbles around, especially with all the, the MIPS systems and helmets these days, where you know there's some that are like a shell inside of a shell. So no matter how tight the helmet gets, the outer shell just kind of flops around. Having helmet lights or GoPros or anything on those can be really frustrating. Um, so having a, a smaller, lighter weight, lower power light makes it more optimized for this physical location too, especially if you're doing any kind of endurance riding, you know, 24 hour races, bike packing, anything for, you know, several hours, you're gonna feel that weight on your neck. It's gonna fatigue you as well. So, um, and that comes right back to the beam pattern because your head is pointing where you're looking, at least it should be, unless you ride with a really weird posture, you can have a narrower beam and, and be okay. We still have good peripheral coverage, um, but it's a narrower main beam and a little bit more vertically oriented so that um, when you look into the you know switchback, you're seeing the switchback because you can be pretty particular about where you're pointing it. Um, that means that you're covering a smaller field of view, which means you can use less light, smaller battery, et cetera. So, um, the, you know, the, not losing the definition on the trail is kind of the primary motivation, but then everything else kind of leads to the same, I, quote unquote, ideal solution for our primary setup and then um we we essentially kind of establish our baseline products and then as we develop future products that's where we start taking these other use cases that are perhaps less common and making products that are optimized for that um and people can do that with their own setups with stuff that's on the market as well um you know not just our brand but other brands um it just depends on their setup
0: yeah i think that was a good explanation of a lot of those trade offs there. And I mean, kind of along those lines, something that I've done a fair bit in the past is have a helmet light with just a very small battery and pretty much only use that descending. And then I'll just, you know, turn it off a lot of the time and save that power. And by doing so, not really need very much battery on the helmet light at all. And in doing so, have a smaller, lighter light. And, you know, a lot of ways to kind of go about that. But I think that makes pretty good sense. And I guess. To tie into that, I mean, you've obviously laid out kind of the trade-off between having a more powerful light that then requires a bigger battery to have any reasonable runtime and, you know, weight and size and cost and all that stuff. So I guess how do you go about thinking about how much battery you really need and how bright a light you need and kind of bring the whole package together so that you have a cohesive thing that's got enough juice to do what you need it to, but isn't, you know, huge and unwieldy and more expensive than it needs to be and all that kind of stuff too.
1: Yeah. And that, that comes right back down to kind of optimizing the products for the task at hand. We can make, we could very easily make a 12,000 lumen light, uh, but it's going to be incredibly heavy and bulky and unnecessary and not optimized for this. Um, it'll be cool. Uh, sure, but it's, it's not going to be the ideal product. So um, again, like everything else, all depends on, on factors of your, you know, if you're 65 and you're out shredding and your eyesight's not very good, first of all, good on you. Uh, you might want a little bit more light than most people just because your eyesight's not as good. Um, that doesn't mean that more light solves all problems, but that's, that's a factor. Putting that aside, um, you know, I guess it's more specific in the road bike, world um or just the road going world where we actually go out and we measure intensity at specific beam angles and points we look at how wide a typical lane is and um and try to give our our very specific coverage on the road and we back calculate from there all right how many lumens do we need to cover this area at this intensity at this distance because that's simple physics calculation to get us to a ballpark of how many lumens we need um, coming out of the front of the light and then from there we figure out, all right, we designed this optic to give us this beam. There's some efficiency loss there. You know, how, how many lumens do we need out of the LED emitter itself? How many are lost? Uh, how many are collimated? And then what's what's our runtime target? How much runtime do people typically need for their rides? What are, what are you know, the most common complaints from people? Um, and that'll fig, determine, you know, what operating modes we need and then how big the battery needs to be. So, uh, we really look at again most common use cases. Most people, two-hour ride is is what they're going for. Now that's that's at the kind of the limit for a common ride. There's plenty of people doing longer rides. Plenty of people doing short, quick rides where they might end in the dark or start in the dark and go into the day. Um, but two hours is a pretty good good number to start from for a, a general runtime target. And so we're trying to. To kind of base around that, we we move a little bit around that specific point, um, but uh, from there, for trail riding, for example, we we know about where the uh, I would say sweet spot is for total light output. And right now, our our helmet and handlebar combo together um, is in the 3,000-3,500 lumen range total. Um, we can you can get away with less. You can get away with more. The thing is that your eye is everybody's eyes are chemical receptors and they respond very non-linearly to light. Your pupils adapt. Um, you know, when people talk about their night vision where it takes 20 minutes or so for their eyes to adapt to the darkness, that's, that's a common human trait and your eyes adapt really quickly to bright lights. Your pupils constrict immediately and then you can't see anything in the dark for a while. Um, so at night for us in particular, we're not trying to make something, you know, we're not making a a version of a light that's twice as bright because it doesn't actually feel twice as bright. It is on paper, but your eyes adjust to it and it doesn't, it's not that notable of a difference. You kind of need four times as much light to feel like it's a significant, you know, like a doubling of light output. Um, and so it's very quickly, we kind of try to get to a point where we have a good balance of weight, size, runtime and output for, for typical rides. and, and, you know kind of put our line in the sand there and then we're not going to see a bunch of big drastic jumps because you got to jump so far to make the product so much bigger and heavier that it just it's not good for the task anymore um and so i think we've kind of settled on our our range but you know we're going to branch out from that a bit as we expand products because we want people to have answers for their use cases but you know as a small brand you you know, a lot of companies start out by making one bike. They don't come out with a full lineup of bikes because uh, they wouldn't be able to support it. They wouldn't survive. Um, same with car companies. Um, so we're we're slowly expanding our portfolio into the um, less uh, less common use cases. But that wasn't your question. <laughs> so I'll stop talking.
0: <laughs> no, that was that was good. Um, and pretty interesting kind of what you were saying there about how it takes such a big increase in output to make a really big perceived difference, just given the way one's eyes adjust and all that, but makes sense and does kind of mirror the experiences I've had with, you know, variety of light systems over the years. And um, so I guess I think that's a pretty good sort of rundown on the, general considerations in light design and choosing one and that kind of stuff. Anything you feel like we glossed over on that front?
1: Well, I you mean, know, how much time well, of do course. have? Um, <laughs> I could, I could talk for, for probably days. I'd say that, um, you know, we, we kind of let off the, the start of this uh, talking about all the bells and whistles that you do or don't need You know, not every bicycle needs to be Bluetooth connected. Um, You don't need your light to track your GPS route. Like uh, there's, there's limits to technology where it adds value. And I think that's, that's a big part of kind of optimizing product design as well. Um, You know, there's a lot of people that really want their lights tied into their GPS for speed control um, so that it does what they, they think it's going to do at all times and they don't have to adjust it. Um, Sure. There's some use cases where that makes sense. I, I tend to feel like from a design perspective, we're not, we're not trying to find a, a new feature that is going to help sell lights, like, because it's cool. We're trying to find things that really add value to the actual experience on the trail. And, um, sometimes that's a new feature set, you know, uh, sometimes that's just trying to eliminate little nuisance factors from other parts of the experience. You know, if you're, if your light is hard to get on and off your bike um takes you a few minutes to set it up because you've got like a six foot long cable and a battery pack, you don't know how to fit somewhere or whatever. That's that'll actually stop people from using them. Um, you know, it, it'll be one more excuse not to ride your bike at night. It's like, oh, I gotta get my lights set up. Um if you can't feel the button on your helmet light through cold winter gloves on a night ride and you have to like hunt around or you feel like you have to take your helmet off to change modes that's really annoying. That's going to make you not want to deal with it. So you're just going to leave it on all the time in whatever mode, and you're not going to have the same experience. So we're, we're kind of taking the the two approaches there of eliminating the reasons that the, the things that bother people and, you know, to eliminate excuses for people not to use a product or not ride to make it as simple and easy as possible. You know, like the whole, you know, the best review you can get about grips is that I didn't know they were there. we kind of want you to just go out and ride and not be thinking actively about our product, thinking about the riding. But then also from a technology standpoint, as we narrow into these, you know, uh, more um, unique use cases, what's what's really adding value? Do do we need speed control? Uh, probably not. No, I don't. I personally just, I mean, there's we could have a whole debate about that, but I don't. I don't think that's worth it. I think it adds complication, and if anything, this is one of those areas we're adding. Uh, additional technology, like auto shifting, for example, you know, it's very similar to that with uh, Shimano coming out with auto shifting. Can it add value? Absolutely. But I bet that most people that would use that, they're not going to remember the 99% of the time it shifted perfectly. They're going to remember the one time it didn't do what they wanted it to do. And it drove them, it caused a problem. And uh, you know, like that example of creeping into a steep chute. You're going super slow into a steep shoot. Okay. Well, your light thinks you're going slow. So it turns down you're about to drop into the chute do you want it to brighten before you drop into the chute or after you're going 20 miles an hour at the bottom so yeah there's ways to get around that but like that's just one example of all the different things that we could include in a light that aren't really going to help like wireless remotes we could do that uh, and we will Um, that's in progress but we don't want a like a simple button that's not ergonomic that's velcroed onto the bars that doesn't fit around your other controls that you have to take your hand off the grips to reach that you have to hunt around for um, that has minimal versatility you want it to actually integrate with the rest of the bike so like that product is more about ergonomics and fit with other components than it is about like wireless controls and bluetooth technology um, so I, I think there's a lot of companies that are kind of pushing the limits on tech, which is good because we figure out what doesn't work really quickly. Um, but, but because our focus is more uh, starting with the simple setup, and, and this kind of goes back into, you know, what what does an average person need to look at or or what should people focus on when they're trying to figure out what they need for riding? Just get something. Get something that works. And, you know, borrow something from a friend and try it out. You'll very quickly know what bothers you and what doesn't or what doesn't work and, um, look to fix that. Don't look for things that are, um, you know, shiny and fancy and covered in marketing and technology because technology doesn't help, uh, you know, Bluetooth doesn't help you distribute the light on the trail where it needs to go. Right. Um, I just think there's a lot of that going around now, but
0: yeah. Yeah. I think that's pretty well put. And I guess to maybe bring it home here, um, I've certainly made the case on, Blister and both written and talked about it a bit just for night mountain biking being sweet, both because it's a way to open up times when you might not otherwise be able to get out, but also just because it's fun and different. But let's hear your version of that case.
1: And yeah, I think that the two primary uh situations are people have to ride in the dark, like say for example, they live in Bellingham and it's dark at three thirty PM for several months out of the year. Um, or they just, they get bored because they're doing the same rides all the time. You know, their work schedule is what it is and they want to want something different and they've never ridden at night. So night riding is, is different. Um, you know, like, uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot to say for going out on a group ride with friends and getting out somewhere in the middle of the woods away from, you know, society and everybody turning their lights off and just being in the dark, in the quiet it's, it's surreal. It's so different from being in the daylight, uh, with everybody and especially having people around with you to share that with that's super fun. And I think there's, there's not the same, uh, algorithm in, in daytime. Like it doesn't, doesn't compare the same way. Um, not saying it's better. Um, but then also just like, if you're most people in most winter areas, if they're not, you know, ski bumps, they, tend to exercise less they stay in more because it's darker they're less active and just it's an excuse not to ride so finding an excuse to ride keeps people active keeps them sharp keeps them happy you sleep better you know all the you know typical good things that come along with riding your bike um so yeah i that's why i encourage people even if they you don't have to buy our lights you don't have to have the best setup just get a light and try it even if it's a shitty light because you might go have a good time
0: yeah cheers to that and, uh, Tom, thanks again for this. This has been fun chat and just some really good info on bike lights in general and what you're up to as well. So appreciate it. Enjoyed it. And, uh, talk to you soon. I'm sure. Hopefully get out for a ride sometime before too long here.
1: Yeah, it sounds great.
0: Thanks. All right. That's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in your preferred podcast player to keep the show going and growing i'd also like to say thanks to tom for the conversation thanks to taylor Ahern for producing the episode and thanks to you for listening from all of us at blister please take good care of yourself everybody else and we'll be back again next week bye everybody